0: And now that we're cleansed, we're finally clean, we can begin recording. Yes. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Jordan Kistner in the Damn Library with us this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jordan has written for N Plus One, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, GQ, The Guardian, The American Scholar, The California Sunday Magazine, The New Yorker, The New Republic, New York, (laughs) all the different ways to talk (laughs) about New York, Pop-Up Magazine, and Pitchfork, among other Publications. Her work has received a Pushcart Prize and was selected for the Best American Essays 2016. She teaches creative writing at Columbia University, and you are the recent author of Thin Places, Essays From In Between.
1: Guilty as charged. That's all you. Yeah, I did all those things.
0: Um, Thanks for coming. I'm so stoked that
2: you're here. I'm so
1: stoked to be here.
2: Jordan is a longtime collaborator and friend, and it's very cool to watch. We'll talk about this when we talk about the book, but it's very cool to watch your longtime collaborators and friends put a thing out into the world. Yeah, it's true. That's very cool.
1: I feel like we've known each other almost as long as I've been working on this book. Wow. I feel like I've wow. been, I've been having to say to drew, I'm still working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I swear it's going to happen. I promise. I promise I'm working on this book for like our whole friendship. So I'm glad to finally have something to show for myself. Yeah. to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: See, I'm not a dirty liar. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about it. Thank you. It inspired a drink, beautiful one. I uh, love Christmas, as people know who listen <laughs> to the show. There was this bar in Cobble Hill called Leanda that switch it that really Christmas takes over the entire bar, and they change it to Slayenda. And uh, there was this one drink, uh, gin-based, that used what's called Christmas gin from, from um, Edinburgh Gin Company. And I've always wanted to find a bottle. And finally, I was in Philadelphia last weekend, and they had it on sale, no less. <laughs> this thing that I was looking for, and looking for. Um, and it's cool because it's gin that's been infused with frankincense and myrrh, which is just... So awesome! What
2: are the tastes of frankincense
0: and myrrh? Uh, it's in the drink. Can you taste it in the drink? <laughs> you can taste it when you just uh, taste the gin. Um, it does have an herbal and uh, it a has herbal a finish. kind
1: of warm, warm spices thing to it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not cinnamony, but yeah, I can I I sense a sort of floral, herbal, spicy, tree barky kind of. Oh, gin. nice! <laughs>
0: so that's yeah, that's what I think of. One of frankincense or myrrh. Sounds like tree bark. I don't actually know what they are, but this the you have um, a very interesting relationship to religion in this book, and it comes up in many different times. And so I thought something that was sort of blessed with holy, um, <laughs> you know. Are
1: you giving me an anointed cocktail?
0: Yeah, well, it was, It's sort of anointed. Thank I mean, we're you. we're getting it, there's an essay in the book called "Attunement." So I'm just calling the drink "Attunement," and we're becoming attuned to the thin places that we will find in the damn library.
1: I love it. It's also very delicious. It tastes, even though I've been bullshitting about being able to taste warm Christmas spices, it actually is super balanced. It doesn't taste like getting punched in the mouth with a, like a Christmas candle. Oh, you know? thank goodness. It's very, <laughs> it's very bright.
0: Yeah. God, it, that's the worst when that happens. Um, and it's, so it's not just gin. It's also a uh, lemon juice, uh, honey syrup, uh, St. Germain elderflower liqueur, um, Pear. And, and muddled pear. Mm. I love pear. And egg white. And then I've got a little bit of, so there's also another essay in the book deals with your three dots tattoo. And so there's three dots of turmeric bitters across the top. Oh uh, so God. it's an inked.
1: I thought that was just like a cool touch, but that is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Christopher.
0: So <laughs> this is the attunement and it's, a, it's really nice drinking. Um, it
1: is.
2: It's delicious.
0: Egg white cocktails have a beautiful foam. I just, I always enjoy it. It tastes like adult marshmallow cream or something. Oh, yeah,
2: that's a good way to put it.
0: So that's the drink. We don't talk about your book yet. We talk about something else. What do we do? What'd you buy? Oh, yeah. What'd you buy? What What did you buy? Do you want to talk about what you bought?
1: Sure. Uh I bought a couple books this month. Uh I bought Homie by Dinez Smith. Oh yeah. And have been reading it and cannot recommend it highly enough. I am not somebody who cries while reading ever at all. And I keep crying reading this book of poetry. Wow. Um good, happy tears. Not like, you know, not sad tears, uh beauty tears. Uh so I bought that. And I love it. I bought a book called *Beyond the Periphery of Skin* by uh, Sylvia Federici. Mm. For work, I'm I'm uh, researching a couple different essays right now, and that was relevant to one of them, so I bought that. Uh, I bought a copy, not for myself, but for a friend of mine, of Roland Barthes' *Morning Diary*, which he wrote. Um, on note cards after his mother died and my friend recently lost his mother and so I bought him a copy of that book to give away as a gift. Mm. And then uh, I bought How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. Mm. Oh, yeah. Which I haven't started yet, but I did buy it. I'm excited. It's sitting on my nightstand.
0: Wow. Nice. We had him on for his poetry collection many, many years ago. <sighs> oh, so good. And I haven't read the memoir yet because I... My heart is already so close to breaking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the I can tell you from experience, the memoir will do it. Uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> that's a that's a nice uh, list of books. Yeah, uh, Drew. I also
2: bought four books, but they're all by the same author. Okay. Uh, this year, I decided. I I, long time listeners will know that I have been doing this ten year catch up thing of trying to fill in the gaps in the canon that I missed in school. And at first that made a lot of sense. It was Dickens and Wolf and Toni Morrison and Ernest Hemingway. And as I'm getting close to the end, I'm realizing that I've sort of, I've been developing my own canon. And I'm less interested in the books that I missed in school. And it's more like, what should I have read in school? Mm-hmm. And somebody, unfortunately I'm forgetting who it was, but a listener of the show was like, you have, you not read any Clarice Lispector (laughs) and so I was like no uh, you know what I haven't so I bought four books four books from uh, New Directions that make up her face like the four quadrants when you put them together they make up it's Agua Viva, Passion According to GH, Near to the Wild Heart and one other one that I'm forgetting but I'll put it on our website but I'm excited that's what I'm going to do this year I'm going to read those four Lispector books as a filling in the canon. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited about that.
0: That's cool. I need to read Clarice Spectre as well. I read like She's one short story. Great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Super weird.
0: Oh, that's cool. Here for it. And great. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Big fan. All right, Christopher. So I, you know, I'm going to talk about work too. Since you talked about work, I also I bought a couple of things for work. I've been um, I I'm representing this woman who's teaching her dog how to talk with, <laughs> and uh, Christina Hunger. Go check out her Instagram, Hunger number four words it's really cool and now that she's working on her book about how she's teaching her dog to talk i thought i should read some of the the books that are about dogs that are out there right now so i picked picked up inside of a dog by alexandra horowitz and what the dog knows by cat warren and i love that there's a book about dogs written by someone named (laughs) cat and i also uh, we got sent and i'm so so damn excited about it um it's pre-ordered, so it'll show up again. But uh, Stephanie Dandler's uh, memoir, mm. Stray, um, she's been on the show twice before, and we love her. And I am so excited to read this memoir of hers, which sounds heartbreaking in the same way. Mm-hmm. I've been of... hearing
1: great things about that book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I loved Sweet Bitter, so I'm excited to be back in her voice. Yeah. Because her voice is incredible. Cool. So that's consumerism. <laughs> But book consumerism, so you can feel
1: good about it. The best kind of consumerism.
0: So let's talk about Thin Places. Uh, What's your pitch for the book for people who, uh, for the listeners who don't know?
1: Mm, Sometimes it depends on who I'm talking to. um, But I think the way that I would neatly describe the book to a general anonymous listener is that it's a collection of linked essays that are charting in some way my own curiosity about how the religious impulse or the desire to believe in something and invest faith in something manifests actually in all over secular American life. Um, And as somebody who is not religious myself, but used to be, I went on this journey of sorts in my mid twenties to figure out what were the systems of faith that were going to work for me? Um, Were there any that were going to work for me? Um, None of them, had anything to do with an organized religion per se but I wanted to investigate like is there anything in this world that I can believe in and I wasn't sure how to do that and so I started looking around at other people who seem to be experiencing something similar some kind of big shift in an understanding of themselves or the world and mm-hmm. I was interested in how other people deal with crises of understanding and so each of the essays um, is kind of a stop along my path toward figuring out um, how to be a person.
3: Mm.
2: Oh wow, that that throws the structure of the book into an interesting new light
0: mm-hmm.
1: for me. Mm.
0: Yeah, I am. Um, I <sighs> loved this idea that um, that the book is titled from "The Thin Places." Can mm. you talk about "Thin Places" specifically? Because I'd love to. Start yeah,
1: them. I learned about this concept of the thin place uh listening to an interview with Anne hamilton the artist um she was on on being the on being podcast with krista tippett and i don't know like five or six years ago I, I was cooking in my kitchen and listening to the radio and i heard her talking about um thin places which are drawn from celtic mythology which holds that the The distance between this world and the next world is never more than three feet. So we are always kind of hovering three feet away, you know, just outside of an arm's distance from heaven or the next world or Mm -hmm. some, you know, the veil, whatever is on the other side of the veil. But that there are places in the world called thin places where that distance of three feet gets even smaller and even smaller and kind of can blur and maybe you can even reach through the veil to some kind of imminence. Um and I totally fell in love with that concept and with that metaphor and it just became this metaphor that I wanted to sit with and play with and live with for a while because it seemed like a really good way of describing certain experiences that I'd had that had nothing to do with like celtic theology <laughs> <laughs> or even really with um organized religion at all but it sometimes falling in love feels like a thin place. Mm-hmm. Um, it as I was reading about thin places I realized that it felt like a really apt metaphor for how it had felt when I was a teenager to develop an anxiety disorder and have this brain that had been very familiar my mind had always been like pretty familiar to me and all of a sudden I felt like I didn't recognize my mind anymore and that felt like I had sort of stepped through some thin place and so it became this operating metaphor for almost everything I wanted to write about everything I was having big questions about. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I decided as I was writing these essays that they were going to be a collection of thin places Mm. that I found in myself or in the world around me.
0: I loved that. And it was, it was immediate, it clicked for me immediately too. Um, and I'm curious because so much of it is about space. If you, um, if you if you found any thin places in New York, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, like are there any space like actual physical spaces that you feel you can go and get closer to this, um, in between?
1: That's a great question. I think there are probably plenty, but the one that leaps to mind is, um, and I think this is purely subjective, right? Like my answer will only just be for me, but I think about the peer, um, Down in Red Hook, if you walk past the fairway, behind the fairway, there is this pier that there are these like old warehouse, I think they're old carriage houses that have been turned into artist's lofts. And there's Mm -hmm. kind of a walkway in front of them. And you can walk all the way kind of out to the tip of Red Hook, where it's just the water and the Statue of Liberty. And I, for whatever reason, always feel like that is the thing that leaps to mind I was also there and thinking about this and we're like really in the experience of confusion or curiosity or whatever that was inspiring the book as I was writing the article thin places and trying to think about how I how I was gonna encapsulate these ideas into a metaphor Um, I was walking up and down that pier Mm -hmm. a lot Um, and so I always think of that as a place that kind of has that touchstone Mm -hmm. feeling of um, kind of nice in-betweeniness. Yeah. Um, anywhere near the, I grew up on the ocean. I grew up in San Diego in a sort of surf hamlet north of San Diego. And so, and I'm a big, I don't know, I've always felt the most at home, right, like two feet into the, pacific ocean so anytime anytime i'm uh which is i guess also like a kind of a liminal now that i think about it it's kind of like right on the edge of something um so anytime i'm near ocean water i feel like
0: that Mm, that makes sense in the best
1: way yeah
2: i am very much a person who's steeped in the mythological version of thin places Mm. it's like i grew up you know in like an adams family house and sort of the very spooky idea of the world and not in an organized religion sense but the other ways in which you're talking about other other things other worlds that sort of creep in and creep next to ours Mm. and as i was reading the book and thinking a lot about this idea of the various thin places that exist Mm -hmm. or that can be manifest i found myself thinking about the way in which this book is a thin place between the reader and any book is a thin place between the reader and the writer. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how, a, if you were thinking about that as you were crafting the book, but also sort of how you navigate the, the personal and how, how close you will let a reader get versus how close the reader might find themselves
0: or want to get.
1: Yeah. To me or to the text? To
2: you, you, to you, the writer, through your text. I'm thinking about this because of the last essay, and I it's not a it's not a spoiler necessarily, but the the last essay, um, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it, and I think part of it is because I know you, and I know your wife, and I love you both very dearly, and the way and uh, hearing both of your voices through that essay, but it, it is the moment that feels the most intimate in yeah, the
0: book. It it feels like you um, are letting everybody in in a way that before you were, you're more explaining and more. Yeah. So
2: that was the moment too that I, I that's when it clicked for me. Yeah. This idea of this book is also a thin place. Yeah.
1: Mm. I love and think a lot about books as thin places or books as these possible moments of erasure of space between one person and another person. Um, and there was this whole body of writing that I cut mostly out of this book <laughs> about um, about language as a thin place. Mm. It got a little bit, it was a little too biblical. It was a little too heady and I just couldn't fit it anywhere that it didn't feel pedantic. So I cut it, but I'm fascinated with language. Obviously, I mm-hmm. became a writer. I'm fascinated with the way that language can create that kind of collapse between mm-hmm me and you or me and the world um so yeah i think about that all the time
0: there's the essay in um in in habitus Mm -hmm. uh where you you decide okay i'll i'm gonna talk about my mom Mm -hmm. and you you know you fight about it with yourself on the page about why you didn't really want to Mm -hmm. so
1: i would always much prefer to not have to write about my personal life. But unfortunately, (laughs) everything I write is driven by these deeply personal concerns or curiosities or problems or something's bothering me or I'm heartbroken or there's something going on that is deeply personal that drives every one of these essays. And so I'm often in an argument with myself Mm -hmm. and or my editor or whoever it is um, wherein. I, as my editing self or the editor, will say, we need to understand why you're here. Like, why are you here? You're clearly passionate. There's something important to you about this and you won't let us see what it is. And that's because I am, I don't find, I don't think I'm like particularly private with my, with people I know, with my Mm -hmm. friends, but I am always very afraid of being, overly confessional or melodramatic. I think I was sort of coming of age as a, as a reader and an aspiring writer in the era where young women were writing sort of like spill your guts out memoir on the internet. Mm-hmm. And that was a big way that young female writers of my generation were getting introduced to being writers is like write all your trauma, write all your pain, write all your feelings. And um, there is a really important place for that, I think, in literature. But for me, I always wanted to shy away from that a little bit because I think in the worst cases, let me make sure I don't say something to get myself in trouble. I think in the worst cases, the machine of publishing can encourage that kind of self-exposure um, in a way that is not helpful to the writer, that uh-huh. is that is exploitative mm-hmm. of a writer and can sometimes substitute for substantial writing and thinking about the, of, and meaning-making mm-hmm. around personal experiences. And so I feel like I just saw a lot of versions of personal writing that felt to me like something I wanted to be very careful about and very wary of. And so I have this like this odd paradox in my life where a lot of my writing is extremely personal and I'm trying to find any way to understand my own experience that doesn't involve having to actually explain on the page what the fuck my problem is (laughs) Um, (laughs) which I I'm working on finding a balance of and I and sometimes it takes me many months like with that essay Habitus which is about a debutante ball on the border of South Texas, which is where my mom's family is from, and it's in this debutante ball. All these teenage girls who are Mexican American, largely, it's like ninety-seven percent of everyone in Laredo is Mexican American, um, and some of them are actually just from Mexico, are dressing up like Martha Washington to mm-hmm. honor their Amer- this very kind of jingoistic Americanness. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why I was there um, was because. There's something about that that speaks very deeply to my own family history and some conflicts that I feel within myself about what it means to be somebody with um, Mexican and Mexican-American heritage. My mother's Mexican-American. I'm half Mexican-American, though I've always passed as white. Nobody has ever, ever looked at me and said, oh, you look like you might be a Latina woman. Like never, (laughs) ever. Um, And... I was there trying to figure out why people who live on the border between Mexico and America and are Mexican American can often be the most invested Hmm. in being American in this way that is an idea of Americanness. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because I see that in my family because there is Mm -hmm. a history of um, a complicated history of, uh, respectability politics and racial trauma, and all that stuff um, that lives in an interesting and, and beautiful and complex way in my mother, and therefore lives in an interesting and complex way in me. And so I'm down there trying to like write this reported essay about debutantes, and it's very, you know, like I'm recording everyone and all that stuff. And then as I drafted it, I kept hitting a wall where I was like, I don't know how to write everything that I think about this without talking about my family but i can't talk about my family i don't Mm. want to talk about that seems so so taboo um and i i spent a whole summer just freaking out and then (laughs) and then eventually i you know and i was like crying it was very it was the hardest thing (laughs) I ever it was like really such a such melodrama for somebody who tries not to be melodramatic on the page such melodrama writing this essay and then eventually I was talking to my mom and I admitted to her that my problem was that I couldn't figure out how much of what I wanted to say was mine to say Mm -hmm. and we had this crazy long conversation about it and she said well why don't you write that why Mm -hmm. don't you write that which gave me the permission I didn't realize I was waiting for to try to articulate my own experience right, Um, and And that was very scary and it had a, we had a lot of complicated to me, hive inducing conversations (laughs) conversations about what I had written right, and how she felt about it.
0: Well, there was this moment too, where you refer to something and and you bring it up to your mom, a memory of yours Mm -hmm. and your mom's just like, I don't remember that at all. Yeah. How did that feel when you're going back and this memory that feels sort of important? Yeah. And she's just like, that maybe didn't happen. I don't think that happened.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, It's not the first time that that's happened.
0: With your mom or with everybody? No, no, with my mom and me.
1: My mom jokes that she's like the family history keeper. And often Mm. I, she made this joke to me like three days ago. And often I will remember something and she'll say, that never happened. Or you must have dreamt that. (laughs) Um, And we can't always resolve that mm-hmm. between the two of us you know some if i think logically you know it's a memory from when i was very young and you know what i probably wasn't old enough to remember that and i must have heard it and reconstructed the memory from mm-hmm. things i heard when i was a little kid things like that yeah or um in the case of this this correction that i wound up making within the essay wherein i say this is how i remember it my mom doesn't remember that uh it seems totally possible that I'm remembering that wrong. And so it's important to put it in that way. And yeah. other times, I'm sure that what I remember <laughs> is right. Um, and so I, and I'm sure that, and I know that her memory is flawed too. And so it's a, it's a negotiation between us and one that in this case, um, because being the person who's writing the book gives you so much power mm-hmm. over the other person, I yeah. wanted to be really as thoughtful as I I could possibly be um, about honoring how she remembers the things I'm writing about.
0: Right. Right.
2: In terms of negotiations in the process of putting this book together, I have read some of these essays before they were collected in the book. And particularly I was, I had just gotten my galley and I had left it at home and I got to work and I was like, Oh shit, but I want to read Jesus raves and I know that I can find it online. And then I realized that the essay in the book has been changed a bit so that it's you're, you that like cut out some of the redundancies from attunement and to craft. So often when I pick up an essay collection, I feel like it's the same essay that I previously read. Mm-hmm. This book doesn't really feel that way. It feels mm-hmm. like you did work to turn it into a book. And I would just love to hear what that process was like.
1: I'm so glad you feel that way. <laughs> that was one of my goals was that I want, I knew I was writing an essay collection, but I didn't want it to feel like you could have read any of them before and just skip them. Mm-hmm. And maybe people will feel that way and that's fine. But I wanted it to feel like a coherent book that had an arc that told a story, even though it was a collection of essays that are not necessarily even chronological um and so I went back and storyboarded the book basically and tried to figure out okay what's the what's the opening circumstance and what is the what is the problem that this book is trying, what is the inciting problem of the journey of this book? And some of that had been articulated in Jesus Raves. And so I needed to pull it out and put it in the introductory essay because Mm. I knew that Jesus Raves wouldn't be my first essay. Mm -hmm. It would be ideally, and I think it landed as the second essay. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Jesus Raves, um, which is an essay about, uh, it was the first material of this book that I wrote more or less. Um, The first essay I completed it's actually the first essay I published um was it really yeah it was Ah. my first published essay I was still in graduate school and it was I spent a while um at this church of young evangelical Christians in New York um and in particular one summer they were doing what they called a pop-up church in Montauk and they were incredibly beautiful and compelling and young and fun people and they went out clubbing they were like amazing dancers and partiers and they would go out and they would evangelize to montauk summer clubbers (laughs) like at 2 a.m on a saturday (laughs) in the club and they did that mostly by seeming like and genuinely being the people who were like the best partiers having the most fun and so they had this kind of charisma to them that would attract people and it would which is sometimes happens with evangelical christians these like the, there's something about them that is so compelling and joyful and you want to understand what their thing is and so people would come up to them and then they'd be like yeah come hang out with us on sunday <laughs> um and so that's that's what that essay was about and it 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 told that story in a, in a tidy way. And I didn't feel like that could be then blown out into like, here's, here's the context of what else was going on in my life as I was reporting that (laughs) essay that then led me to write a whole book. Um, But so it couldn't be the intro, um, but the intro needed some of what was originally in that essay. And Mm. so I went back and and took that apart a little bit, tightened some things, added back in some things that had been cut in the original round for space I did the same thing with thin places. Mm-hmm. Those were the two that kind of required the the most um, that were the fullest formed but required me to s- rob from add to because they those two pieces were the original heart of me saying okay this is I think there's some search searching that's happening in these two essays that I'm going to have to do a whole I'm gonna, I'm not going to be done for a whole book mm-hmm. about it. Um and so those two needed to be reshaped a little bit, and then others like I published a, a version of the the Mormon Women for Ethical Government essay, but it was like at a thousand words, mm-hmm. and so that's also got like really blown out.
0: I loved that one. I uh I Thank have you. a I have a relationship with because I grew up in um, Santa Clarita, California, which is the, one of the highest um, populations of Mormons outside of Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, really, and, and so I. Uh, huh. One of my absolute best friends, I was, um, best man at his wedding and I wasn't allowed at the wedding in the temple, mm. but I was allowed at their secular celebration or regular celebration. I don't know how secular it was, but, um, so I, I was really thinking, cause like so many people look at Mormons and they're just like, that's a crazy cult, but there's so much going on there. That's really fascinating.
1: Yeah. I really always want to go talk to the people who are dismissed as being part of a crazy cult. Um, and understand i don't know i have a i have a softness not for actual cults but i have a softness (laughs) for um for the way that a lot of people who are in more strict or stringent uh or orthodox in some way religions are not crazy Mm -hmm. in the way that often american culture at large or you know new york secular folks or whatever want to dismiss them as crazy Mm -hmm. um because they're not crazy and many and many times i don't believe usually for a second anything that they believe but there is so much beauty actually in understand like there's so i have never been more humbled than in the two weeks when i went and stayed with charlie mullins glenn it wasn't even two weeks. It was like a week. But um, Charlie, who's the the main character in that essay, this amazing, amazing woman, um, Mormon woman who lives in Utah and her friends, I have never felt more instructed mm-hmm. about the kind of person... Uh, I'd like to be in my community. I've never seen people who have such an intuitive sense of what social justice might look like. Mm-hmm. And it's just not what you would expect when you're like, I'm going to go hang out with a bunch of like white Mormon ladies in Utah. Yeah. Right.
0: They're like, well, we're going to all organize something incredible together and there's going to be brownies. Yeah, they're like, like we're going to low
1: key overthrow Utah state government and make brownies. Yeah.
0: Both things are together yeah. Hell yeah.
1: <laughs> at the same time. <laughs>
0: That admiration totally comes through um and it, it also was really um poignant in the shaker essay um which yeah you if you don't call them shakers if you just if you subbed in like the moon cult or something they sound crazy i mean like just the detail i've never really read the details or thought about what a shaker is other than knowing their furniture um but oh my god but then you have this great thing where you're just like it wouldn't it be awesome if this is what we could if you could find all your joy here like i i i felt that
1: the shakers are rad actually (laughs) they're so amazing um or they were you know they're a a much reduced um community now but they were also like forerunners of social justice ideals like way before that was even a a concept they were pro-racial equality they were pro-gender equality they were but they are also a radical separatist um communal living where you're not allowed to own anything you're not allowed to have any family that is your own you have to kind of live in total social and emotional equality with everyone around you and everything needs to be sublimated into your work i mean it's not surprising that and you have to be celibate it's not surprising that their numbers dwindled because imp- it sounds impossible yeah, yeah. um But it's actually, I think, a very beautiful expression of some ideals that I hold, you know, that I hold. Um, And I don't know. I think they're one of the things that I was looking for in this book as I was, you know, in my mid 20s, I'd gone through. I'd gone through a tough breakup. I'd gone through a, actually a, a few tough moments where something I thought was going to be like really for sure in my life had kind of fallen through. And so I was feeling a little unmoored. And so I was going around looking for people who seemed to like really know what they were up to. The Mormon women were mm-hmm. some of them. Shakers, boy, do they know uh-huh. yeah. what their life is about, what their rules are, what their um, and why they do what they do. And none of those systems worked for me and I didn't go in thinking that they would, but I was interested mostly in understanding how humans, what humans need to be capable of that kind of commitment yeah. to values, to arriving at this feeling of, I know what I want my life to be about. I know what I believe in, whether that's a religious faith or just like a set of social principles or ethical principles. And this is how I I can know them so surely that I can shape my whole life around them. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was feeling so, so confused about what how a person makes a life mm-hmm. and how you figure out what is, like and this is touched on a little bit in the tattoo essay like how how can you know that anything is going to be permanent enough to believe in Mm -hmm. how can you know that you yourself can be sort of steady enough to decide what your values are and what you believe um and i was i don't know maybe that's a mid-20s thing i was just in a very (laughs) confused moment and so i was looking around at all these people who's for so beautifully sure.
0: Right. I mean, I felt like there was this, this search for, I I was really um, sort of locking in on your search for language. There was this moment in the first essay where you talk about how religion was this new language for a feeling that you had. And it reframed my world according to its logic. Mm -hmm. And I, I locked onto that because it seemed like everything you were, like and then once religion stopped being able to d- explain the whole world like then it was like oh i need to go look for the for the new thing like the new thing to reframe my logic around and then there's this moment uh where your friend sort of curses you in a way <laughs> uh with um with the conversation around um vertigo and right and and she says this thing that like reframes your idea of me- your your own mentality mm mm-hmm. Um I, I was just saying that language was like spell work. Um,
1: language is like spell work. <laughs> it is. I mean, I I think a lot about the fact that our language for things creates and shapes our thoughts. Our thoughts are not separate from language much of the time, which means that the language we have available is are the limits mm-hmm. of our Mm. um or is the limits of our is the limit of our experience of the world and i of course we have experiences that we can't put into language and that's specifically an interest of mine mm-hmm. is the ineffable but um as you're saying i was uh i think always and this is in that first essay that you quoted like the i think i always had even as a little kid this this feeling of the magic of the world that there was Life beyond life, that there was um, energy and that trees were alive and you could talk to them and Mm -hmm. all, you know, that kind of childlike um, spirituality or mysticism that you often see in children. And I had it. And then when I was introduced to an evangelical Christian framework as a maybe eight year old, I was like, great, cool. That's what I, that's how we talk about this thing that I've been feeling. That makes so much sense to me. And so then my understanding of the kind of mysticism and imminence of the world was um, coded in the vocabulary of God and of specifically of a kind of New Testament-y, um, beachy, Jesus-y God, because that's where I was at the time. And then when I realized at a, as a teenager that I don't actually believe in the specifics of that, that doesn't work for me, I can't I can't feel that that's true, I felt like i had completely lost my linguistic framework for understanding the magic of the world like all like miracles and numinosity and all that stuff still felt operative for me but i didn't have any idea of what to call it or what it meant or who i was in relationship to it Mm because
0: the underpinning was gone
1: because the yeah my my language had fallen out from Mm -hmm. underneath it and and that was something that i felt but didn't really turn my attention to so directly until i had that feeling again really acutely in my mid 20s in this you know quarter life crisis thing um and then i started thinking okay what it what is do i is their language can i make new language can you write your way to new language for how, who you are in relationship to the world and your under and and how you experience it which is a, as a, as a place that is full of pain and full of magic and full of meaning and full of confusion and totally something you are unable to navigate, but that you're in and you have to mm-hmm. figure out how to talk about, if only to yourself.
3: Mm.
2: And it makes me think about the book that you brought to us.
0: Yeah. I mean,
2: Chariot Sh- the Spy. <laughs> Which I mean, it so much of that book, and particularly looking at it as an adult, so much of that book is just a kid trying to figure out how the world works. Yeah.
0: Oh, and
2: fucking it up along the way. But-
0: <laughs> my my god, is this hard, book hard to read as an adult? Really? Because she's got such a um such an a an acidic, acerbic view of the of everybody. Everybody is, you know, it's that little kid lack of uh, tact uh-huh. of just like you know that person's fat like that person is ugly that person is stupid you know there's no yeah. gray and like you don't feel bad as a kid for having that thought yet <laughs> <laughs> you don't have like shame for like having putting so- put so- putting someone in a negative category
1: mm-hmm. or for just observing them truthfully right to right. yourself right
2: and so um, oh, this book uh at the spy by louise
0: louise fits you
1: fits you
2: when we asked you to pick a book for this, you gave us a li- but you had an immediate choice and then you had a couple of like, oh, or we could talk about these. Well,
1: I know you guys, I don't think you've had a children's book yet in your book club. I don't know that we have. And I wasn't sure if that was kosher. I think we've had,
2: we've had what I think you might call YA in the modern era, but I don't know that we've had like
0: a straight up middle reader. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like, uh, I, oh, we, I went to Strand to pick up a copy, and it was. No, I had to go down farther towards the oh yeah play area. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a chapter book, and I think it's sixty-four chapters. I was re I was brushing back up on mm-hmm. Harriet today, um. So it's definitely like a middle grade book. I think I read it when I was seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and then about. returned to it. And yeah.
0: so, why did you want to talk about it with us?
1: Well, I had recently reread it. I love rereading the books that were my favorites when I was a kid Mm -hmm. to see because when I reading was my ultimate favorite thing to do, Um, still is. But it was kind of the only thing I did other (laughs) than hang out with my friends as a kid. Um, It was my primary hobby. And when I found a book that I liked, I would read it over and over and over and over again dozens of times, and often like several books at a time. You know, I was just a really um, excited reader. And so as an adult, often what I'll do if when I'm home visiting my parents, there's a bookshelf where a lot of our favorite books from when we were kids are still, you know, like my mom filed them. And I'll go and pick one back out just to see like, what's my experience of this thing that was (laughs) so I had it memorized as a child. What does it feel like to read it now? And I had recently re- reread harriet the spy um because i i have often thought of that book as one that really shaped my life mm-hmm. i deeply identified with harriet mm-hmm. when i read the book um i was also really nosy as a kid and really curious like If I could eavesdrop, I would eavesdrop. Uh If I could, this is not a flattering thing to admit, if I could read someone's diary, I would read their diary. Mm. If I could go through purses, my mom's purse, to be like, what's mom up to when I'm at school? Like, I would do it. (laughs) Um, Because I was so... uh, So Harriet the Spy, Harriet wants to be a writer when she goes up and she wants to be a spy, a writer and a spy. And her whole life is about... Observing mostly the adults around her, but really everybody—you know, kids in her class, everybody—and trying to see what their secret lives are, what right. it, what it is about them that they don't show to the world. What do they do when they're home alone? She's constantly spying on her neighbors. Yeah, and
0: like, like deeply spying, like, like creepy, spy. creepy <laughs> spying, creepy yeah,
1: yeah. spying, illegal Climbing spying into a dumbwaiter waiter, yeah, that's, trespassing that's spying. Her yeah.
0: first, her. The two intro scenes of this book are so insane. The first one is <laughs> you find out something about her life that you know she goes and visits her um nanny's mother, mother. Mm-hmm. with her nanny and already that's a that's an insane thing to open a book with to me because I feel like you we don't even know who she is yet quite, although that opening sequence where she's explaining her neighborhood game to sport is really good and then, after we have this wild outing with old golly. We moved to her like breaking into this old woman's house yeah. and using the dumb waiter to get to and listen to her phone conversation. Harriet so it's just like
1: spends a lot of time breaking and entering in yeah. this book. And if I could have, I would have as a child. <laughs> that yeah. was everything I wanted um, was to just absorb and observe as much of human experience mm. as I and other what other people were like and what they were up to um as possible and for a long time I kept I was inspired by Harriet to keep a notebook and I did for a long time <laughs> The opposite
0: I, inspiration and like the book I know as you. an adult you
1: read it, right because it does not go well for Harriet <laughs> yeah. she does that <laughs> and it didn't go well for me I would write descriptions of honest descriptions of um the people around me mm-hmm. and the most mortifying experience of my young life was that I was visiting we were visiting my grandmother and I was, you know, had my little notebook and I was writing all my observations. I was describing everyone in the room and I described my father and I described my mother. I think I, you know, my dad was like, I can't even remember how I described my dad. You know, short hair, pink skin. I don't know, whatever. And I described my mom. And for my grandmother, I wrote dark curly hair, pink glasses, overweight. <laughs> All of which was just true, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Like she was, she was, uh, she, my grandmother like really struggled with mobility and so she couldn't be very active and so she was kind of overweight. Uh, and my grandmother found my notebook <sighs> and was very upset. Mm. And I was horrified, I was horrified uh-huh. that I had hurt her feelings because I, much like Harriet, was just, try- and I was as at that time younger than Harriet the character is, was still in the place of kind of thinking that all your private thoughts will remain your private thoughts Mm -hmm. and that you can just say what's true or ask ask the most honest question without totally understanding the way that adults might understand those those observations um and so then for a long time i i did a much better job of hiding my notebooks because i was so upset at having upset my grandmother (laughs) um but i think that the thing about Harriet is that she articulate in her, we sort of see this journey of a young person who really wants to understand the world. And she thinks she will understand it by observing it, but actually she mostly doesn't understand what's happening in front of her. She's getting a lot of the like concrete details, but she doesn't understand emotionally Mm
3: -hmm. what's going
1: on for the people around her that she's observing. Like there's a moment where, it's near the beginning. It's in that first scene where she goes with her nanny, Olgali, to visit Olgali's mother. And Olgali's mother is maybe a little bit impaired in some way, intellectually or emotionally. And she's and Harriet's looking at Olgali and she's like, she has this look on her face. I've never seen her have this look on her face before. Is she mad? She looks maybe sad. I didn't even know that Olgali could be sad. Yeah. Like she's 11 and she can't even quite get to the to understanding other people's feelings so she's a really sharp observer but she's not there's so much she doesn't understand
0: right Yet. yeah I mean like reading this as an adult I sort of wondered I, I, I was almost putting her on the spectrum in some way because <laughs> yeah you know eating only only eating t- one thing and needing her things just so it just sort of fits in t- into some of the ha- hallmarks that you see
1: oh my god that would never occur to me um, but you're right <laughs> yeah she's very quirky Harriet something I I always admired about her and wanted to emulate about her is that she is herself yep to the the nth degree she likes her one sandwich she says you know she says I like myself I love myself you Mm -hmm. know she just and she doesn't understand the journey she has to go on is beginning to understand that there are moments where you need to be like aware of yourself so that you can be kinder to other people mm-hmm. right um and at the beginning we see this character this like young kid who is just like in a th- thirsty search for truth as she imagines it mm-hmm. and she's a little bit looking in the wrong place
0: yeah i mean i i i it's just so hard to read as an adult there's just so many things about it that are just like that as a kid i was just in harriet's thrall I was just completely I was seeing the world with her and I did and you know when you just think that she's right. Or or at least I did. Because, she is eh, right. Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah.
1: She's right like on the on the hard scale of like justice and truth. Yeah. And yeah. she's often emotionally very wrong.
0: Um, and then <laughs> but then yeah, she's so she's so harsh. Like her her descriptions are so and then, you know, of course the, I also know what's going to happen. So I'm reading all these things and knowing you, you just te- sense the tension that this is going to come out. It's the original for me, sort of like a Chekhov's gun type of thing where, you know, if she's writing a diary later on in this book, you will like that diary will come out into the public. Mm-hmm. Like that's just how middle reader <laughs> books are going to, to work. Yeah. So as she's I wish re- I
2: could have read it again for the first time, it's pretty rare that I feel that way around rereading where I want I want to go deeper and this time I really I wanted to experience it fresh because I had that tension in the back of my mind the whole time I was like well I know that the plot of this book is that somebody gets the diary it's not just this kid fucking developing a criminal career on the upper <laughs> side um and and I, I couldn't I couldn't escape that knowledge while I was reading it and the tension was frankly un Bearable yeah. at times, where I was like, "Oh, oh, you shouldn't." Have... Oh,
1: boy, that's gonna come
2: back to get ya. Yeah. in a way that I, I know that I didn't feel that way
1: as a kid. It's so funny because I don't feel that way quite as much reading this book, mm. though. That's something that I feel constantly in my writing life <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, I write about real people, uh-huh. and you have to describe them, mm-hmm. and you have to write down things that they've said that they're gonna be unhappy to have quoted and. That so, the, Harriet's conund the ethical conundrum of Harriet <laughs> is something that I have really apparently chosen for myself as a <laughs> continued struggle in my adult life and in my professional life. So, but I don't find. I don't know. Maybe I still side with her that she should get to write down whatever the fuck she wants in her own notebook and nobody should steal it. And like if they do, they shouldn't get mad at her for writing the truth in Mm -hmm. her own. It wasn't like she published it. It wasn't like she was saying it. She was just observing for her own records, her understanding of the world and what she saw. And I feel like ethically she's I mean, she's not always she's not gentle and she's not empathetic. But I don't think she's done anything wrong. Right. What
0: yeah. 11-year-old truly is super empathetic and not not all of them. Yeah, not
1: all of them. Yeah, <laughs> all
0: of them. I, I love this New York. I mean, I... I it didn't
1: feel like New York...
0: I, I It's
2: uh, wild to me. It used to be my stomping grounds. Like, I lived for two years on 78th Street between York and the river and I lived for two years on 95th Street between 1st and 2nd. And so, certainly... it. There's so much description in this book about people, and there's just not a ton of description in the first chapter when they go out to Far Rockaway. They're like, Which... we hopped on a bus and then we got on a train, and a little while later we were. And I was like, that's a fucking two-hour trip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what did you do the whole time? You didn't write down anything. What's what the
0: fuck? Yeah, I mean that was that was something that I was it was funny to read now because. Reading it as a kid, it's just like, they're going to Far Rockaway. Right, Might as well be. I, that could be in Connecticut. I don't know where. I, <laughs> like, I don't know what that is. Uh, But now I know. Uh uh-huh. Just like, you should go to Rockaway Taco. It's good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it. I was surprised, though, at how the description, there are certainly very New York-y moments in the book, but so much of it, the way that buildings are described and the ability to break into houses, it feels, as a kid reading it growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, it did not click for me in the way that now I'm like, oh, this is this is what New York City is like mm-hmm. and this is... I can translate it almost in a way mm-hmm. where it felt like the novel is translating it for kids who aren't necessarily ever going to see New York.
0: Right. Yeah. I loved New York novels as a kid very much. You know, there's so... there, I mean, there's so many good ones. Yeah. Hmm.
1: I was... I was aware as a child reading this book that New York was different from where I lived because when I read this book I thought very seriously about what it would require to break into my neighbor's house uh-huh. and I realized it couldn't be done. Uh-huh. Um and I was like, you know what? It must just be that I'm that here in California you can't it's it's the way the houses are here i think i can't do it (laughs) also i was despite the fact that i'm making myself sound like i was a child sociopath i was a very rule following kid so i was not gonna like get myself into too much trouble Mm -hmm. um But I like was not going to actually break and enter into someone's home. But I had this imagination of New York as this place where you could just sneak into a (laughs) dumbwaiter and and where the houses had dumbwaiters. I didn't know what a dumbwaiter was. (laughs) I just asked my mom about it. And so I had this imagination of New York, particularly because of this book and because of um, uh, the mixed up files Uh, of Mm -hmm. Vasily Frankweiler, that New York was this. Wonderland for kids where you could yeah. just there was this access you could go anywhere and get in anywhere and yeah. and and be in the world in the mo- like get yourself to the heart of places yeah um which I I don't know if that's true growing up in New York actually but it was not my experience as a child I did not feel like <laughs> nearly the level of like access to to the heart of things
2: I one time did break into my neighbor's house yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not where I thought that was going. <laughs> but
2: looking back, I Wait, knew
0: in Philly or here in Philly. Okay, <laughs> no,
2: here just a couple weeks ago. I just uh, was working on my lockpick tools. Uh-huh. Um, but I looking back, I realized that like I wasn't I wasn't actually breaking in. I they were on vacation. We knew where the key was because they let us use their pool. Still breaking in,
1: and I had to go feed their fish. Oh, like I cool. had a responsibility. I'm sorry. That's not breaking in. But that's for called the l- l- pet sitting. I know, but for the <laughs> for the longest
2: time, I sort I built up this thing where I was like I would I would treat it like I was breaking into their house. It just like I got that thrill. I mean, this could, I was also a very good good rules boy then and now. And so that was about as close as I could get. To really feeling like, yeah, I never would have imagined genuinely breaking into any of my other neighbors' houses.
0: I mean, you know, I would say a hard recommendation from our show is to just not break into your neighbor's house. Just don't do it. Just don't do that.
1: But I think that 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 (laughs) speaks to something that's very common among children, which is this feeling that you want more access to knowledge about the world than you are being granted. Yeah. And... You're going to have to steal it. And you are going to have to steal it. You're going to... Because your parents are there... Reasonably to protect (laughs) you from certain from all kinds of knowledge that they have deemed that you're not ready for. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, at least I always felt like I wanted, like bring it on. Let me know everything. Let me hear all the weird adult words. Let me understand. Let me hear things that I'm not going to understand, so that I can wonder about them at night. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I just never grew out of that feeling and that's why i'm a a writer because as a features Mm -hmm. writer you get to go into people's houses all the time (laughs) who you don't know and ask them questions about like what do you what is your life how do you feel like what do you believe why are you up at at one in the morning making a facebook group for your other mormon female friends Mm -hmm. about how you hate trump like what's the that continue I think I've never gotten over Harriet the spy because I've never gotten over that feeling of the world has so much more things to figure out and find out and discover in it than I have access to mm. and I've not, never gotten over that feeling of wanting to be in rooms where I'm not where I can just be on a fly on the wall mm. and and learn about what's going on in someone else's life or someone else's brain or someone else's soul even you know like let let me go hang out with the shakers and be like what is going on with you like why are you here (laughs) yeah you know and i i never i hope to have grown out of um some of and i think i wasn't quite the harsh harriet was pretty is a pretty harsh character and i don't think i was quite so so headstrong and quite so harsh i was very concerned about other people's feelings i think as a kid but that kind of like bloodthirst for, for information. Um, I've still got, I think I accidentally made a whole career about it. (laughs) That's so
0: great. Yeah. But that book taught me your diary will get read. Like that's just how it happens.
1: Yeah. I
0: wish I had. Did your diary get read? I did. I, I don't know. If it did, then it, it I think I had learned the lesson from. It. <laughs> so it's just like in there, like my, my parents are very cool. <laughs> <laughs> if, if they were, if they did read it, they only read. You good always things. wrote for an audience. <laughs> yeah, well, because I learned a, from Harriet, probably. I did not, and
2: I really that was another thing. Reading this book, I was like, whew, whoops. <laughs> uh,
0: we should recommend some things. Yeah, I mean, other than recommending rereading this book or reading it for the if you didn't read this book. We just spoiled it all, uh, but it's great. You should no, read but it, there's though. so much. Like, yeah.
1: th- all the best stuff is, is left unspoiled.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, that's the first recommendation. Great.
3: We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah.
2: Do you want to do another? Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, well, I'm gonna. Uh, there's this book um, by uh, Rebecca Stead. I think it's Stead. Um, called, she won the Newbery for her awesome book When You Reach Me, which is another great New York middle reader novel. Um, and she wrote a, uh, which I kind of think of as an update of H- Harriet the Spy, called Liar and Spy, about a um, a kid who wants to be a spy and his and he moves into a new building in new york and it's really really good um and like harriet the spy it's it holds more than what you think a middle reader book would there's more more there there so that's my recommendation and the other thing is a song i'm going to recommend um that your book reminded me of that you uh suffer an avocado injury i do in the book and there's a fantastic song about an avocado injury uh, by Jens Lechman, uh the song your arms around me. Oh my god, I love that song. It's a fantastic song and it's all start it's all seriously it's about blood loss from cutting an avocado. So <laughs> the real scourge in life is avocados. You got to be careful. You got to be, really be careful, careful. with I avocados. Um so that's my other recommendation is to be really careful cut away from your body when mm-hmm. you're cutting open an avocado. Jordan would you like to recommend some things?
1: Um Sure. So I should recommend something to read and like maybe something to listen to. Anything anything you want. want. Uh, I am going to recommend something maybe silly, but the most excited I've been about any piece of media in the last few weeks, I'm already embarrassed about this, is I have been watching the Netflix documentary Cheer.
3: Mm. Mm Mm-hmm
1: which is about a community college cheerleading team. They're perhaps the best in the country in South Texas, in Corsicana, Texas. And it, I turned it on one night while I was cooking, thinking like, I don't really care about cheerleading, but I don't have anything else to watch. I'm just going to like, I imagine I'll turn this off halfway through. And I wound up watching it, like mainlining it for like several hours. (laughs) It was... Inescapable. I think it was. It's beautifully edited. They've done such a good job of getting complex, comp, really complex and beautiful stories of these young people um, who are on the cheer team, and it is also the most nail biting. Cheerleading is terrifying. Uh-huh. It is a nail biting experience watching these eighteen year olds put themselves through. A, phys- a grueling physical experience and injuries and um, certain kinds of like commitments and pain that I really cannot imagine for myself. And it is worthy television if you are in the mood for a great documentary. So there's that. Uh, and I'll recommend something that I'm excited to read. I'm really excited to read Kate Zambrino's Drift, mm-hmm. her new novel, um, she has been publishing up a storm lately. I recently read her, it's, it's short stories and short essays. It's called Screen Tests, which uh-huh. came out last year. And I really loved that. Um, a lot of the pieces are in screen tests are pretty short um, and thoughtful. They're musings. And I just love the, they're like teeny stories or micro essays. And I love the boldness of somebody who can can write short, Mm -hmm. can kind of allow a not, I don't know, everything I ever write, I feel like I have to write 10,000 words so I make sure I've completely explained myself. And I really love the boldness of someone who can just let a moment be on a page Uh and trust that a reader will be um, there for it or Mm -hmm. just a thought. And I think I have long admired Kate's writing for its formal boldness for its independence the independence in its intellectuality it it, she sort of seems to write only according to her own um compass mm-hmm. um, and i deeply admire that um so i am excited to read her novel drift which is nice, i think nice. her first novel in a little while she's mostly been I writing non-fiction since green, since green, since green girl. girl yeah
2: mm-hmm. i loved that
1: book um loved also while we're re- rep- wrecking. Kate Zambrino, The Book of Mutter mm. about uh the death of her mother, and um Heroines, which Ooh, is yeah. a beautiful book.
0: Drew?
2: Um I love authors who help me figure out the world in one way or another, and I sort of in short order of finishing Thin Places had read two books by two authors who I absolutely adore. One Scarlett Thomas, her most recent book, Oligarchy, is, it's a, it is a campus novel. It's a young uh, Russian girl, the daughter of a Russian oligarch, ends up at this girl's school in England, and it, it feels like the tension is crazy. It feels like it could go in a number of different ways, and it, it stays more rooted than you think it's going to but it sort of looks at the ways in which body image and eating disorders catch like wildfire in this group of young girls in just a few years ago. It's like really early 20 teens. Um, and it, man, it was just riveting and like sexual politics. It, it reminded me a lot of Lisa letts The Swallows, mm-hmm. but with a lot more, a lot more English shading to it and so you don't quite know what's going on and you get to the end and you sit with it for a minute and you're like oh wow mm-hmm. sort of the other book that i want to recommend exists in a similar space to that and it's Catherine Lacey's new book which is not out until may
1: i'm dying to read that
2: oh it's called pew it it is so it is so strange it it feels like a lost ursula k Le Guin novel um and she i read a, a little bit where she's talking about le guin's influence on the book and the epigram is from the ones who walk away from Omalas. it this unnamed androgynous figure shows up in this town they are narrating the book they show up in this town asleep on a church pew and sunday morning everybody comes in it's somewhere in the south they are Nobody can figure out who they are um what race they are, what gender they are, how old they are they seem to sort of appear different to different people and it's a week leading up to this forgiveness festival mm. in town and there's there's this thrum of tension that's happening where you like oh I've been trained to know that bad things are gonna happen like forgive it feels a little bit like a Jesse Ball novel in that way but then there's also it's just this excoriating look at america Uh. and both i finished reading both of these books and i was like i know more about the
0: world now Hmm. which is it's the best thing it's also
2: how i felt finishing thin places
0: yeah go buy thin places it's out now and oh and if you're
2: curious to hear jordan talk to more people about thin places you should check out her new limited run podcast thresholds Oh. which
1: produced by Drew Broussard which uh,
2: will hopefully be out by the time this airs I, I can't guarantee fingers that, crossed so we'll let you know <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and also we always recommend and we always really love it when you guys write uh, iTunes reviews uh, or if you support us on patreon.com slash SMDB and uh, you know go Talk to and us. do all those things uh, find
2: us at so many damn books at all the places so many band blah, 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 blah. So, so many
0: band ducks. yeah uh, <laughs> .com <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay that's right. it bye Bye-bye. and see Thank you so much Jordan for Thank coming Thank
1: you guys it's been so much fun Bye bye